Welcome to Food Talk. This is Rob Perra, executive producer. On this episode, Danny talks to Dr. Kathleen Merrigan, the executive director of the Sweetie Center for Sustainable Food Systems at Arizona State University. ASU and Food Tank will have a summit on the wisdom of indigenous foodways on January 22nd to highlight the voices of native and indigenous food leaders. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Food Talk with Danny Nierenberg. Today, I get to chat with Dr. Kathleen Merrigan. Kathleen is someone who is kind of impossible to introduce, but I, I'll give it my shot. Um, Kathleen is a former U.S. Deputy Secretary of Agriculture and a leader in sustainable food systems. She is now the first executive director of the Sweetie Center for Sustainable Food Systems at Arizona State University. She also holds the position of the Kelly and Brian Sweetie Professor of Practice in Sustainable Food Systems with appointments in the School of Sustainability, College of Health Solutions, and the School of Public Affairs. She helped write the Organic Foods Production Act of 1990, which enacted a standard for organic products. As the Deputy Secretary of Agriculture, she managed uh, the Know Your Farmer, Know Your Food initiative to support local and regional food systems. She was named one of Times Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World in 2010, And most recently, she was the executive director of sustainability at the George Washington University, where she led the GW Sustainability Collaborative and the GW Food Institute. I have had the incredible honor of working with her for many years. So Kathleen, thanks for being with me today. Oh, thanks, Danny. That's a long introduction. I must be very, very old. No, you're just very, very accomplished, <laughs> and you're not old at all. Um, so I ask everyone the same first question for this podcast, and, and that is, what is your favorite food memory? Oh, absolutely. The Berry Man um, going down the road where I lived in a small rural town. My brother always got blueberries. I got raspberries. Nice. And we could sit on the back stoop and eat as many as we'd like. It was just um, a very, it's a very visceral memory. That's awesome. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Western Massachusetts, the town of Greenfield, Mm. county seat. We're very proud of that. (laughs) Um, Just below the Vermont border. Oh, that's so great. I forgot that you grew up in Massachusetts. That's awesome. Um, So one of the reasons that you and I are talking today is that uh, food Tank has this incredible honor of, of partnering with you and ASU on a summit next week to highlight the uh, wisdom of indigenous foodways. And I'm so excited ab- about this opportunity to highlight how indigenous peoples and native peoples in, in the United States and, the, and around the globe really are finding ways to produce healthy, affordable uh, and accessible food, create resilience to climate change and five ways uh, to involve youth and and a whole um, range of stakeholders in, in what they're doing. So I, I guess my question for you, Kathleen, is why was it important for you and the Sweetie Center to highlight indigenous food systems? I mean, I know you're based in Arizona, but why was this such a, an important part of, of your work there? Well, I don't think it's any one reason. As you know, I just moved to Arizona in the heat of August. I think it was 116 degrees the day I moved wow. in. <laughs> Um, And I really recognize that over 27% of land in Arizona is tribal land, and that this county, uh, Maricopa County, which is the home base for Arizona State University, has the largest number by percentage of Native Americans of any county in the country. So as I seek to learn about my new home state, 
I also want to learn a lot from my neighbors, yeah. and my neighbors are tribal folk. And in my work, you know, I'm, I'm doing a lot of stuff in ag tech these days, and I'm really psyched about some of the innovations mm-hmm. that are coming out, and a lot of it's that Silicon Valley-infused enthusiasm. And I'm looking forward, but at the same time, I'm looking back. Mm-hmm. And I realize that there's this wisdom in some of the indigenous food systems that we just not have, we've just not given it prime time. And so this summit is an opportunity for me, for you, for others to learn and think about opportunities that may have been missed in the past. That's awesome. I love that idea of going forward by going back and looking to some of the the ways, um, the traditional food ways. And I, I'd like to get into that a little bit more. You know, you you talked about the sort of interest in tech, tech and Silicon Valley and all of that. Why has there been this reluctance to sort of combine high and low tech? I mean, it's something that Food Tank talks a lot about, but you know, the the people investing from you know, the tech side are not thinking about the combinations of, of uh, practices that really need to happen to combine high and low tech. I think it's the big D word, diversity. Uh, it's lacking in a lot of our food system work. I know that I, among many, are saying that if we're going to change the way we do food in this country, we need to change the faces around the decision-making mm-hmm. table so that they reflect the real demographics of this country. So when we have our summit, we're going to hear from a lot of people who aren't always at that table and should be uh, because they're innovators. They're people who understand resilience over thousands of years mm-hmm. in their cultures. And uh, there's a lot to learn. I think sometimes... Um, that's that's it. I'm always looking in any room I walk into in my work. Uh, are we representative? Are there people of color in the room? Are there um, people of various ages? Um, what about gender? I think these issues need to be pressing on us all now. Absolutely. I, I mean, you've you've worked in food systems for a, a long time now. Why? I, I mean, and I I see it all the, all the time. You know, there's a uh, a lack of people of color in the room. There's, you know, mostly people of the same age and, and the same gender. Why have we not been able to be more inclusive? I mean, we're getting there, but why have we not been more inclusive in the past? Well, maybe people like me need to raise our voices louder. I, at this point in my career, uh, if I don't make noise about this, mm-hmm. why do I think it's going to be different for my daughter? Right. Um, Agriculture has been primarily a male sport, a white male sport, in terms of the policy enterprise my entire career. I became very comfortable and accepting of walking into rooms where I was the only woman, and I just can't allow that any longer. That's great. That's, I mean, we all have to be doing that. And it's, I, I think for me, I thought, you know, people you know, who were older than me had fought those battles and won. And that's just not the case. And I I see it all the time, too. And I am trying to be like you, as I have in a lot of ways throughout my career, but trying to be like you and and raise my voice for not just, you know, the the young women in in my life, but, you know, I have stepsons and I want them to grow up in a world, too, where they, you know, understand the the power uh, and and uh, of of not only women, but other voices and, and other 
uh, communities. So, I, you know, we all have a, a lot to do, I think, on that front. I, I want to go back to, you know, how you wanted to get your, you know, to know your own, your home town now. And, you know, you, the, the curiosity you have about your neighbors in Arizona. Do you think the, the students and faculty at ASU have that same curiosity or is that part of your, your mission there to, to spur their curiosity about tribal communities? Oh, no. At ASU, we have thousands of Native American students. And uh, I've been working with our VP, uh, who um, Jacob Moore, who is engaged with all the tribes in the state, as well as Brian Brayboy, who's a president professor working directly in the president's office on um, Native American scholarship. So it's a, it's a front and center issue for ASU. But let me say, in organizing our summit and wanting to have tastings of indigenous food from people who are not mainstream, necessarily mainstream food distributors, mm -hmm. becomes a challenge institutionally, all the procurement rules, what people need on both sides. It just is a giant jigsaw puzzle that we need to figure out. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, I know you've been struggling with that on your side as we plan this summit, which I, I want to talk about now. Um, so on January 22nd uh, at Arizona State, Food Tank and the University of Hawaii are partnering uh, with the Sweetie Center to have this really incredible uh, discussion on the wisdom of indigenous foodways. And so Kathleen, I, I want you to talk a little bit about what you're most excited about for, for this evening event that we're having. Well, I'm excited that I'm not on stage. <laughs> we'll come out and do a very brief thank you at the end. People have heard a lot from me over the years. I'm really um, looking forward to learning from others. Of course, we've got two um, celebrity chefs uh, in the crowd, but we also have some people that you may not know or have heard about. Um, so I think it's going to be a real diversity of voices. Things are going to be fast-paced. The idea is to spark conversations across the countryside about indigenous foodways. Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. the start of what I hope will be a larger agenda that the Sweetie Center will have, but this will be a fast-paced um, appetizer. Uh, that's a great... <laughs> you will. I love it. I've been describing it that way, too, as an appetizer. This is the first of many discussions. Yeah. And we're going to um, really focus on the stories that are exciting and stories of strength in both Native Hawaiian culture and Indian country. Sometimes I think um, conversations about indigenous food systems evolve, at least in the policy uh, conversations I've been involved at the national level. It's like, oh, we've got rampant poverty and obesity and Indian reservations and lack of food access. And while that's all true, um, com those conversations overshadow mm -hmm. The real incredible success stories. And so this summit is really about elevating those success stories and trying to figure out what we can learn from them. And I also think it will pique our interest when we hear about some of the traditional uh, pre-contact, if you will, mm -hmm. foods that Indigenous communities are enjoying and seeking business, business opportunities to share with the rest of the world. So, uh, you know, it's it's not fry bread. People associate fry bread with... Right. Um, Native Americans, and certainly that's a comfort food and delicious, but we're really um, turning the clock back farther and looking at some traditional food ways that they've been involved with for a very long time. Absolutely. And it varies. 
it varies depending. It's not just varies between Arizona tribes and tribes in Colorado or where have you. It varies among the tribes even within the state. So there's lots to explore. Absolutely. And I should just say that this uh, event will be live streamed. Everyone can go to foodtank.com and, and check it out uh, on, on uh, the evening of the 22nd. Uh, Kathleen, I'm interested, you, you know, you use the term pre-contact foods. And for some of our listeners, that's a very new term. Can you describe what you mean and then maybe describe some of what those foods are? Oh, I'm the last person to be able to describe what the, the foods are. Some people will also call them first foods, mm-hmm. um, but really pre-colonial foods that have, um, you know, survived the test of time that people are still propagating in their communities and enjoying. Um, so, I, you know, people can go to our blogs and they can read about some of these foods, but I'm, I'm just really inadequate in terms of describing no, what okay. they are. Um, it's outside of my, that's the thing. Again, I am on a learning journey at the summit and excited to be doing so, but I am not at all the expert. No, no, no. And that's fine. You're also, uh, you know, this is a, a, a really a two day event for you. Uh, the, the, the public event is on the 22nd, but you're also convening, uh, uh an event with, uh, native peoples on the 23rd. And can you talk a little bit more about what that's about and, and why you decided to, to have all those folks in the, in the same place? Well, because I'm insane is the short answer. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be, I mean, it's, it's overwhelming, all the stuff that we're doing at the same time, but we were trying to economize on people's travel, um, uh, and it also helped us uh, get some headliners at both events. But the second day, we're doing an invited workshop. I'm um, doing that with Janie Hip, who leads the Native American Agricultural Fund, and Paula Daniels, who runs the Good Food Purchasing Institute. And the three of us decided that it was time to explore the evolving rights of nature legal doctrine and think about how that intersects with the rights of food doctrine and explore whether that's a a trend or a legal effort that we can propel in positive ways. So it's um, very academic. I think we have about three inches of paper <laughs> that are the read-ahead documents for that. So I know people listening to this are not clamoring to get in the door, but I think it will be important. And one of the questions we'll have at the end of the day is, is this uh, something that should be explored in a larger conference context in the end of 2021 or early 2022? Wow, they're really thinking ahead. Can you just, I, I, you know, again, this is probably a new term for our, our readers or a new phrase, the rights of nature. What, what does that mean? You, you, and you also talked about the right to food. I think some of our, our listeners have a, an inkling of what that means, but the rights of nature. Can you just give a brief, it's, I know it's very academic, but a, a brief overview of what that means to, for folks? Yeah, so there have been um, certain countries, municipalities, where they've actually embedded in their legal structures a recognition of uh, the rights of a river, for example. Um, and, uh, you know, in American culture, we're used to thinking of corporations almost having, you know, rights like an individual. And this is thinking about what about nature having rights in and of itself, intrinsic rights. And so we're going to be exploring different legal cases that have touched upon that. and. Um, if we have 
some consensus in a room of very diverse people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh, and, and it's relatively nascent, new to um, a lot of people. And so it's really exploratory. So people should stay tuned. I'm hoping we'll have a conference paper of some sort that we can share with everyone. Right. Uh, post-event with, to save them from reading the 300 pages. <laughs> right, right. And I mean, I think this this... Uh, thinking or this idea of the rights of nature is inherent in so many native cultures, uh, you know, religions and, and ways of thinking. Am I right? Oh, absolutely. And we will have um, several people from Native American communities in the room. But um, in all cases, the way the law has evolved in rights of nature hasn't corresponded with what they would hope the outcome would be. So mm. that's part of the discussion too. It's a controversial area, but again, it's so new in some ways in terms of actual legal cases and government institutions exploring it, that it's at a time when it could be shaped potentially. So interesting. I- I'm also interested in in how you came to the Sweetie Center and that's a fairly new center at ASU and and how that w- that all came about and was developed. You know, you spent a lot of years at Tufts, you spent a lot of years at, at, at GW. Why, why, why pick the you know Arizona State and and the Sweetie Center to make your next move? Michael Crow, the president of ASU, he's a force of nature. Huh. He recruited me, and one of the things that he said and said very publicly, because he has this vision of the new American University, is that so many colleges and universities pride themselves on their low acceptance rates. You know, we accept 4% of applicants or 6% of applicants. It's like, that's nothing to be proud of. First of all, those people who are accepted, those elite colleges, they're going to succeed in life most likely one way or the other. Mm-hmm. You've already got, you've got people who are um, uh, on that trajectory. Right. Uh, we're going to do things differently at ASU. We're going to open our doors wider. We're going to be inclusive, accept nice. everyone we possibly can. Um, we're going to also offer extensive online education to reach people who can't be full-time university students somewhere at one of these places. And we're going to measure our success by their success. So it's very consistent with my thought about changing the faces around the table. It's about being at a university that puts inclusivity front and center, number one, along with innovation, as our goals, and that excites me. So I never saw myself moving to Arizona. I'd hardly even been in the state right. before we moved. Right. Um, but it was a good time for me personally, too, because um, I'm a recent empty nester. Uh-huh. My baby now is off in college, and my older daughter is a junior. So it was a good time for my husband and I to shake it up. That's awesome. That's great. Yeah, I miss having you on the East Coast, but I, I understand the opportunity. And I, I love that uh, – an institution like ASU is is looking at things very differently and and trying to be more inclusive. I, there there's no better time for it than right now. Um, so you know you, you left uh, the DC area probably uh, at a good time. I think we're many of us who live in, in the Baltimore DC area are not so happy with things right now. But you know your your time in government was such an important one, and you, and you made so many strides and and had so many successes. Uh, but you've also, you know, have been an academic, you know, since I've known you. Why are both things? Why is having, you know, sort of that 
that government side and the academic side important to the work that you're doing? So when they have those big government jobs like deputy secretary, you can move mountains. You can make some significant changes. Uh, and then when those jobs end, because my team's no longer up at that, for example, going back in the academy makes a lot of sense because I'm just one person and I may have these ideas and this knowledge base. The most impactful thing I can do is share that with emerging young leaders and have them use what I know as mm -hmm. the baseline and then build upon that. Because I'm more toward the end of my career, not at the front end, and I really want to download and share and encourage people to go into government, to go into NGOs, to go into industry with sustainability uh, first and foremost on their mind. Yeah. We don't have a choice with climate change. We've got to change a lot of different things. It's great to escape from Washington because what I'm seeing right now is a systematic and very effective uh, deregulate, deregulate, deregulation effort. Mm -hmm. Oof, I can't even say the word. It's upsetting <laughs> me so much. <laughs> a deregulatory effort across the federal government. And having overseen USDA rulemaking when I was deputy, I know how long it takes to get something through the rulemaking process. And I fear that whomever comes in in the wake of this administration, whenever that happens, there's going to have to be a lot of rebuilding as opposed to just taking off right. from where we left off at the Obama administration. So uh, I continue to go back and forth to Washington. That's ASU's vision that I'll continue to be engaged in federal food policy mm -hmm. development. And that's my, you know, that's my passion, my love. I'm still going to do all of that. But I'm seeing opportunities to work with industry, um, to work at a global level mm -hmm. um, on ways to move the needle right now when um, D.C. is largely a hard game to play. Right. It, the government's intractable right now. It's, you can't move anything. Right. Um, maybe some impeachment papers, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, lots going on today, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that lack of regulation is scary for so many of us who have worked in the sustainable food movement for so long and saw all that you were able to do and, and your colleagues were able to do under the Obama administration. And the, it's daunting to think about what it will take to rebuild that. Um, so I am glad you're a mentor for for folks who are thinking about going into government or, you know, other parts of, of the sustainability sector. You, you talked a little bit about industry. And so I, I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on where, you know, the food and agriculture, agriculture industries, you know, what, what their role is in sustainability, you know, especially around climate change. So I'm on the board of directors of C2ES, Climate Change and Energy Solutions. And we see a lot of the major industry players, their leadership, recognizing that climate change is the biggest challenge of our time and wanting government to do more and their companies to do more. Mm. Um, so I think that um, working with industry right now makes sense. I was just this week involved with the U.S. Competitiveness Council uh, meeting that we held, and I brought up this issue of deregulation going on across the federal space. And a lot of the companies, it might surprise you, at the table said, we agree, because if we don't have those regulations, um, we have a commons problem, meaning my company does that, but at our at our cost, and nobody else does it. Or um, we go into this technology 
and we're really responsible, but someone else who's not right dealing with regulations, they they go forward irresponsibly right. and the technology then gets controversial and lost. So I think that there's an opportunity to reach out to industry leaders of all sorts and sizes and start having a vibrant discussion about the role of government again because this um, this craze, this deregulatory craze has gone beyond uh, most people's appetites. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I'm also interested, and maybe this is too big a question for this podcast, but what do you hope happens over the next 10 years, whether it's with industry or, you know, food and ag in general? What, what do you see? What, you know, if you had, if, if you could wave your magic wand, which I feel like you always have one in your back pocket, what, what would you want to happen over the next 10 years? And that is a very big question. So, I'm hoping that there's a rethink about government. I've just hinted at that that young people see it as a career path mm-hmm. that has a lot of dividends, a lot of excitement to it, not a dead end. Mm-hmm. I feel like particularly federal employees have been under attack right. uh, during this administration, undermined, and uh, I really want to elevate those jobs and the power of those jobs. I hope that we deal with climate change. We need to be super aggressive and not think that some magic technology that we don't have right now is all of a sudden going to be burst and solve our crisis. We've got to take action. The clock is ticking. And 10 years from now, I hope we have uh, done what we would have had, you know, that we have to do. It's not a choice. Um, I'm hoping that there's more equity in, in, in food system mm-hmm. work and generally in life. The, the country here that we live in, um, the have and have nots, um, kind of equation is just getting worse, not better, and uh, it just breaks my heart. So there are a lot of things, if I close my eyes and do that I dream a genie kind of head nod, (laughs) your your listeners are too young to even know what I'm talking about, but um, there are a lot of things that I can see that, you know, that vision that drives me, you know, where people have adequate food, it's sustainably sourced, it's climate responsible. Um, it's accessible. It allows them to live healthy, happy lives. I, I always want to say happy because mm-hmm. one thing I learned from Chef Dan Barber is that we don't want to forget joy Absolutely. when we talk about food. Um, so, so you know, there's there are a lot of things I think about, Danny. I think about going back uh, to family-style servings and mm-hmm. families sitting around the table talking. Is our life too busy? Are we too addicted to our iPhones? Yes and yes. How do we get from the current culture back to that kind of culture? I don't know, but that's in my vision. Yeah, no, and I I feel your sense of urgency and also your sense of hope and wanting to bring back, you know, the joy of food. We we talk about it a lot at Food Tank. You know, food is meant to be enjoyed, and that often gets lost in these conversations. So I'm glad you mentioned it. Um, I want to remind people that the the event, uh, the Wisdom of Indigenous Foodways uh, at ASU can, will be live streamed. They can go to foodtech.com on the 22nd, January 22nd to see that. And it will be archived on our website as well if, if they're listening later. Um, I also want uh, to make sure that people know how to get in touch with the Sweetie Center. And it's you don't have a good URL, Kathleen, but it's sustainability.asu.edu slash food. Um, so if you want more information about what the Sweetie Center is up to, they do events in both um, 
uh, in Arizona as well as Washington, D.C. So I, I hope folks will check it out again, sustainability.asu.edu slash food. Um, so Kathleen, just as I ask everyone the same first question, I ask everyone the same set of, of last questions. And these are rapid fire. Just say the first thing that comes into your mind. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> don't, uh, don't think deeply about this. Okay. Um, the first is your favorite book. The third plate. Nice. Good one. Dan Barber. Um, the person who inspires you the most. Living or deceased? It, whatever you want, whoever you want. Huh. Barbara Jordan, former congresswoman oh. from Texas. She was a lead voice on the impeachment trial for a um, uh, uh, long time ago for uh, Richard Dixon, and um, she taught me political ethics. She scared the bejesus out of me. 8 a.m. class was never late, never missed, wouldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I have to say that the first time I visited your office, it, you know, I liked seeing the picture of you with President Obama, but it was Barbara Jordan. Like seeing that, I would just blew my mind. And and you know how you feel about her is a little bit how I feel about you. You scared the sh you know the the <laughs> shit out of me and always have. Um, but I think you've made me a better a, a better thinker and a better person. So thank you. <laughs> um, oh, you're kind. <laughs> uh, and the last question is: What makes you most excited about your work? And and you already alluded to that. But you know what makes you what makes you get out of bed every day? So when I went to class on Thursday. And this might sound a little creepy. I don't mean it to be in a creepy <laughs> way, but this uh, student said to me that he had been thinking about me all day long. He got to class early. He couldn't wait to be there. Oh. And he couldn't wait to talk to me after class. That, um, that floats my boat, that I have this opportunity to connect with young people and get them excited about the future and the work that they can do. So... You know, that's a good day when something like that happens, right? That's amazing. Not creepy. Uh, that's really endearing. That's that's the, the, the best thing I've heard in a long time. Uh, Kathleen, I will see you in a few short days. Thank you for being on the podcast. It's your, you know, you are my heroine and, and a great mentor. So thank you for all that you do. Thanks, Danny. Look forward to seeing you. All right. Take care. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share the podcast. Make sure to return to foodtank.com every day for original reporting and analysis on the most pressing issues impacting our food system. 